Well, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2. My name is Philip. I also have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Wannell Road. Glad you're with us this morning. If you're visiting with us, also glad you're with us if you're not visiting and you're a part of this church family. It's good to be back together. Page 857 in the Pew Bibles in front of you is where you'll find Luke chapter 2. We're actually going to be looking starting in verse 22. So we're going to skip the birth narrative of Jesus, but we're going to come back to it on Friday night, Christmas Eve, 530. So come back for the beginning of this story. You can almost view the passage we're looking at as a way to look past the birth to see what it was for. So that's what we'll do this morning. What happened after Jesus was born? i got to confess to you that right now as I stand before you, I would be lying if I said there wasn't part of me that wasn't wondering what you're thinking about me. What you're going to think about what I'm about to say. What you're going to talk about later, about the sweater I'm wearing. Wondering if I wear hair product to keep my hair spiky. Do you ever think about what people think of you? We do. Don't we? We wonder. We want to know how we stand in other people's eyes. Do they like us? Do they think we're good looking? Are they impressed at our accomplishments? Even for people who say they don't care what other people think, they seem to want people to praise their independence. Ever wonder why these things matter to us so much? What do we gain in receiving affirmation and praise and attention from others? What tangible benefit comes from all the thought and pursuit we put into making sure people think well of us? Well, the benefit is knowing we have their favor. Favor is a hard thing to define, but here is my attempt. Favor is a belief that something is good or acceptable. We experience a person's favor when they express that we are good and accepted in their eyes. We all need favor, and we all search until we know that we have found it. But we often search for that favor in the wrong place in the wrong way. It's not that the favor of others doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter the most. This is why no matter how much of other people's pleasure or affirmation or encouragement we've received in the past, we feel like we keep needing it today. It's like a gas tank that just keeps needing to be refueled. Perhaps this is because people's standards change. What is good and acceptable about us from one day to the next is not the same from one day to the next. There's more to it than that, though. I'm getting a lot of feedback in my mic. There's more to it than that because someone can really be happy with us and express it. But still we struggle inside because we know they don't know us completely Or we aren't worthy of favor or their favor isn't enough and we want more favor from more people. 
It's like we intuitively know there must be another standard of good and acceptable that we need to know that we meet. One that isn't centered on other people, but on something else. Something more substantial, something more constant. Something coming from someone who is eternal and unchanging. The favor of God. Maybe we just know that only what God says is good is actually good enough. Who is God pleased with? That's the question we ask after we, if we had read up to this point in Luke 2. That's the question we would be asking after we've heard the angel's message to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Who is God pleased with? Well, we'll seek to find the answer to that in our passage this morning, which gives us the answer, where we learn two main things in Luke chapter 2, 22 through 52. We learn first that Jesus has God's favor. And we learn secondly that Jesus is how God's favor comes to us. Jesus has God's favor and Jesus is how God's favor comes to us. So let's look first at how Jesus has God's favor. This passage, which we're about to read through in sections, is the only account we have in the Gospels of Jesus' boyhood years. In a moment, we're going to read about a few events from his childhood. But glance with me for a moment at verse 40 and at verse 52. These are summary statements wrapping up Luke's description of Jesus as a boy. So listen to verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And glance down at 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Luke tells us that as Jesus grew up, like any healthy boy would, he grew in his wisdom and in his maturity. But Luke also emphasizes something distinct. That Jesus has God's favor. So now we go into the preceding verses to find out why. Why does Jesus have God's favor? And we will see three reasons. The first reason Jesus has God's favor is because Jesus lived God's word. Follow along as I read verse 22 through 24. And when the time for their purification according to the law of Moses... When the time came, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And Jesus would have been a small boy, maybe even still an infant or a toddler when this happened. According to the Old Testament law, parents were to bring their firstborn son to the temple to consecrate them, dedicate them to the Lord. Now, God had saved all the firstborn sons when he took them out of Egypt in the Exodus. And because of that, all the firstborn sons, God says, belong to him. And because we're all sinful at our birth, the parents would come and offer a blood sacrifice signifying that the child was spiritually made clean and acceptable to God through the death of the animals. 
This is what Mary and Joseph faithfully did with Jesus that day. Three times it's repeated that they did what the law of Moses and of the Lord instructed. So this is certainly a commendation of Jesus' parents' faithfulness. They cared about God's instruction, and they followed it. They knew how God expressed words spoke to the particulars of their lives. And so their example encourages us to consider if we know and are using God's word like that in our own lives. Parents, our children begin to grow their sensitivity to how much God's word matters through how we follow God in our life as parents. But given that Luke is obviously wanting us to see God's favors with Jesus, this section that we just read highlights Jesus' word-guided life, even as a young boy. His life perfectly aligned with the pattern God gave for his people. Even as a child, Jesus is living the word of God. There is a seamless connection here between what God says and what Jesus does. Jesus' life is what God's word looks like in practice. We're understanding here how Jesus is like us and yet different at the same time. He is human, being born like us, and yet Not born from the line of men, but conceived by the Holy Spirit, as we learned earlier. He is an emotional, spiritual, physical person like us. And yet, unlike us, his life always conformed perfectly to God's law. He never sinned. He never strayed. So why did he need to have a sacrifice performed for him? If he never did anything deserving of death and was not born into Adam's cursed line. He didn't. He didn't need this sacrifice performed for him. And yet, if we were going to be rid of our sins, he did. The sacrifice had to not be performed for him. But he had to be the one sacrificing himself. And so Luke already in this is showing us how the signals were pinging that Jesus would be made like us so that he could take our sins on himself and die for them. Jesus has God's favor because Jesus lived God's word. The second thing we see here that indicates that Jesus has God's favor is that the Spirit reveals Jesus. Look at verse 25 and follow along as I read from there to verse 38. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, 
This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Do you see how much mention is made of the Spirit's activity? The Spirit reveals Jesus. Now, we'll come back to Simeon and Anna in our second point. But for now, notice how God is using them. When they speak, they speak about Jesus. What they say about Jesus explains what this little child Jesus will do in his life. And how do they know all this? Through the supernatural revelation of God's Spirit. Look at all the different facets of Jesus that the Spirit shows to Simeon and Anna. Jesus is the answer to Simeon's longing for comfort or consolation for Israel. Jesus is God's salvation presented on earth, right in the middle of Jerusalem for everyone to see. Jesus is the means God will use to break the spiritual darkness hovering over everyone, including people beyond Israel, foreign Gentile people. Jesus is the glory of God. He will be the way God's people will be exalted. And Anna speaks to people about Jesus and tells them that he, Jesus, is the long-awaited redeemer who will free God's people from slavery. How could they have known this? The day Mary and Joseph brought Jesus in was just another day in both of Anna and Simeon's long lives. If Simeon was a priest, which he may have been, how many of these ceremonial sacrifices had he performed on how many firstborn sons? How did Anna, after decades spent coming to the temple, know that this was the day to speak with certainty that God's promises for a deliverer had finally come true? Only through the Holy Spirit revealing it to them. Any saving knowledge we have of Jesus came to you from God's Spirit. That is a reason for great praise and great humility. Friends, God wants us to know that he is totally pleased with Jesus. He'll announce it when Jesus is baptized later. He'll announce it again when he is transfigured. God deliberately put that piece of truth into Simeon and Anna's hearts so that they could declare it to others and so that that news could come to you and to me in our hearing this morning. Jesus has God's favor and Jesus would be who Simeon prophesied he would be. Sent from God, he will save us when no one else could. Jesus personally knows the comfort of God's presence always with him. And Jesus brings that to us. Jesus is the clear, shining light, unstained and undimmed by the presence of sin and darkness in his own heart. He is the true glory of God in human form. He is the true representative of God on earth. 
Jesus has God's favor. And that is why he and he alone can be our savior. That's what the spirit reveals about Jesus. That's the second reason why we know that Jesus has God's favor. Because the spirit revealed it. But third and finally in this first point. The third way Luke shows us that Jesus has God's favor is that Jesus loves to do God's will. He loves to do God's will. Look at verse 41, and I'm going to read down through verse 50. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son... Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So this is a separate occasion from the one we are just reading about, about the dedication of the temple. We've, we've moved on. Don't know how much longer, but it's probably been years when Jesus is 12. They go up to Jerusalem as a family to celebrate and commemorate again the exodus of Israel when God saved the firstborn through the sacrificing of the lamb. You remember on that night when when God judged Egypt, he passed over every house that had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And after the fact, he told the people he rescued Israel to have a, a Passover feast to remember and commemorate that event. Isn't it interesting that the two events we know about in Jesus' childhood both have to do with sacrifices Made to present us holy to God and to rescue us from his judgment. Already as a young boy, his life aimed at the cross where he would be the Passover lamb, dying so that we might be made holy, dying so that we might be delivered from death. This story is about Jesus' parents leaving Jesus only to discover it after a full day, then coming back and searching for him. Which, if you have kids or not, you know that this must be a parent's worst nightmare. I can get a pit in my stomach if my youngest wanders around to the other side of the house and I don't know where she is. It's a fascinating view, too, into the Jewish culture To see Mary and Joseph's relatives and friends being in such close community that they assumed mutual responsibility for each other's kids. Kind of like we do. Or aim to do. In our church covenant where we commit to all bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. 
I think I can speak for all parents here when I say thank you to all of our church for the ways you're doing this with our kids when you show care for them. When you desire to know them and interact with them and you pray for their spiritual good. I just want to give you one very practical way you can keep doing that. That's coming up in the life of our church. Pretty soon we're going to be having classes on Sunday morning before our church service hour at 915 where our younger kids are going to get to go to classes of their own to learn truths about God. We need people to help teach those classes. This would be a great way for you to come around as a, as a holding mutual responsibility and care for our children, whether you're a college student, whether you're uh, retired, whether you're anywhere in the middle, reach out to Ruth Ann Jenkins and tell her you'd love to shoulder this responsibility and take care of our kids in this way. Luke is intentionally drawing out the parent-child dynamic here. He repeatedly mentions the parents of Jesus. He gets fully into their experience. And we even hear how the parents feel when they finally find Jesus in verse 48. Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now we expect that Jesus will have some explaining to do. When Mary and Joseph finally find him. Jesus' parents assume that Jesus' responsibility was to be where they were at all times. But Jesus does not share this view. Does he? He unashamedly owns the fact that he made a choice to stay at the temple that day. Even when he likely knew that the family caravan was pulling out of Jerusalem three days ago. He implies that Mary and Joseph had a responsibility to know where he would be. And this is the shocking part. Because Jesus would always choose to be with his father. So from beginning to the end of his life, Jesus' driving motivation and concern was to be fully obedient to God, his father. His heart was for his father's heart. His desire worked in tandem with the father's desire. Where the father wanted him to be, what the father wanted him to do, what the father could receive glory in what way through his life, this is what occupied Jesus' every waking thought. The phrase in verse 49, in my father's house, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? could also be translated, did you not know that I needed to be in the things of my father? Which would put more of an emphasis on Jesus' father to do, Jesus' desire to do his father's will. And not so much about being in the geographic location of the temple. I think that's significant. I think what Luke is showing us here and beginning to show us is that while people were accustomed in that time to coming to the temple to seek God's favor, now the temple is being replaced By this child. Now to find God's pleasure. You go to Jesus. This child. Jesus knows God personally. And can answer questions about God's word. As a 12 year old. That are asked by men who have given their lives to studying the scriptures. Jesus a prodigy. In everything God related. Has this full hearted desire. To worship God, serve God, love God, obey God. So we're sitting here seeing unfolded who this Jesus is. And 
And yet there's this mystery, mysterious, that the Father's plan, the Heavenly Father, the God who made us, involved putting his son Jesus into an earthly family with earthly parents. And yet, even in that environment, Jesus honors both his Heavenly Father and his parents and goes home with them in obedience. Also mysterious is that Jesus, as God, always knew that his father's will was for him to suffer and die to save us. But as he's growing up in his humanity, he came to understand that was to be his life. And as Jesus realizes this, from year to year, as he goes from baby to 12-year-old to 18-year-old to 25-year-old to 30-plus years old... Never is he deterred. No matter how much the the cross increasingly looms over his future, never is he deterred from doing the Father's will. Jesus was just as intent on being your sacrifice on the cross at every moment that Jesus was leading him to the cross. Just as intent on being our sacrifice to save us, even as he came to understand more and more what that would cost him. So we see Luke's point, hopefully. Jesus, this Jesus, has God's favor. He lives God's word. The Spirit reveals Jesus, and Jesus loves to do God's will. So for the rest of our time, I want to take us to the second point. Applicable for us. Not that what we've said at all is not applicable to us. In fact, I hope you go away thinking about Jesus and what we see of him This morning that we've already looked at because God wants you to see that. He wants you to look on his son and see the savior. The one he sent for you and for me. But for the rest of our time, let's look at this second point. Jesus is how God's favor comes to us. I'm not sure uh, what you were like when you were 12. Or if you're younger than that. What you're hoping to be, expecting to be, when you get to be 12. But it's humbling to compare ourselves to Jesus, the 12-year-old. When I was 12, I was not thinking about what Jesus was thinking about. Nobody was asking me to teach them about God. I didn't understand God, really. I thought God just wanted me to be a good kid. And that would sort everything out between us. But I did not do that well. I was mainly thinking about what I would like to do from day to day. Certainly not prioritizing spending time with God in his word. At 12, I was not like Jesus. And I got to say, at 39, I still see a lot of ways I'm not like him. So if you're here and you're visiting and you're You're assuming maybe that a church is some sort of moral hierarchy where where you kind of get in the doors and you start moving up the ladder and the highest position is to stand here and tell other people about what who God is and what he teaches. I I just want to I just want to tell you that's not what this is. In fact, as I stand here before you, I just want you to know that I'm not good. I'm not good on my own. I don't make good choices all the time. I don't love God all the time. I don't love people 
as I should? This isn't a moral hierarchy that we climb up according to our own morality and our own achievements. And I hope you know, whether you're a visitor or you are a member here, I hope, I hope you know why that's good news. Because you can come in here from day one and you can be here for a hundred years and try and know that at the end of it, it's not going to be good enough. You won't be good in every way. We're carrying around that sin and that plague and we need it relieved of us. And we know that we can't shake it. So how can we have God's favor? How can we know that it's good enough? If I'm not what Jesus is, how will God be pleased with me? Without Jesus, we can't be pleasing to God. And this is why Christianity can be so offensive to some people. Maybe to you this morning. We don't like to be told that we can't do it on our own. We don't naturally like the insinuation that we need someone else to do something we can't. We don't like it when God tells us that we can't earn our way to him by good things we do. And yet that's exactly what God tells us. In verse 34, Simeon prophesies to Mary that her son will be the target of people's opposition. The son of God will be confronted and opposed. When our sinful hearts are exposed by Jesus, we find that our hearts are opposed to Jesus so often. Mary, the mother of Jesus, would one day watch Jesus opposed. As Roman soldiers hung him on a cross and pierced her son in the side as he hung crucified. On that day, these many thoughts she has tucked away from day one would likely come rushing back. Here is her son, and yet her savior. The one who by his life and death revealed to her personally, she needed the mother of God, the mother of Jesus. She needed a solution to what her son revealed to her about her own heart. The reality of Jesus uncovers all our hearts, unblankets them. The light comes shining in wherever there's darkness. How we respond to Jesus when he pulls back that veil matters. Either by believing him and trusting him or by rejecting him and opposing him. If you would like to know God's approval, his favor, you can have it. But you must receive it from his son. Trusting that Jesus has done everything in his life and in his sacrificial death for you that you could not do so that you could have what you otherwise would not have, which is God's favor. Jesus obeys the word of God. He saves us. He loves God. And by loving God, he loves us. And that's a message for you if you know nothing about Christianity That's a message for you if you've been living as a Christian for years. How sweet to see that Jesus actually does satisfy our deepest longing in Simeon and Anna. (laughs) Simeon and Anna in their age-old wisdom know and, and, and see this younger people. See what these older, wiser people are showing us. They know there's something more. There's got to be something more. 
They've given their life to serving God in this very practical way, giving their life in service to helping people worship God. And they know there's something more. And they know it's going to come from God one day. And so they spend their lives just waiting. It's got to be something more. I wonder if that's how you feel. I wonder if that's how the many people who will come here on Tuesday night are going to be feeling. In their grief. In their anguish. Having loved deeply these ones who have been taken so quickly from them. They, they will likely come here, friends, and be wondering, what is this for? And will it ever be made good? Will it ever be made right? Will it ever be made new? And so, church, this is an invitation for us to gather here on Tuesday night. And come with comfort, come with truths, come with promises that God does intend to make it all good again. And he'll do it through his son when he returns and he'll wipe away the tears and he will bring back from death into life. And sorrow will be no more, anguish will be wiped away, it will all be made good. And then this creation as it was made to be when God first breathed into existence will come full circle and God will look and he will say, it is very good and I will dwell with you, my people. That's what we're anticipating. And I wonder, it would be uncommon if you didn't feel some strain of that in the world that we live in from day to day. I love how like Simeon Christian, when we see Jesus as he is, that's when we're ready to face death. There's nothing else the world could give us. Like Anna, when we hear of Jesus and we receive his grace, then she is, and then We want to be ready to tell others there's nothing else you need but Jesus. Anna and Simeon show us that a life built around waiting for Jesus may not seem like much. But it's a very good way to live. This is how we can use our young days and our old days well. Our marriage, our singleness, our widowhood, our childhood. Your employment or your unemployment, your blessing and your trial in all these and more, we worship in our waiting on God. And so as we're going to close in just a moment, as we sing, we're going to ask the question and answer it. Is he worthy of such a life? He is. In Luke 2, we are watching the Father, Son, and Spirit engaged in this great plan of redeeming sinners. The Trinity, God, three and yet one, joined together in the work of bringing men and women back to God. The Father's will expressed in his word. The Spirit revealing Jesus as the one sent from God. And Jesus, the Son, in every way, the obedient one. Isn't it amazing what this triune God gives Their attention and power to? To showing us mercy, love, forgiveness, and giving and granting and inviting us into that life with him. Now we will often wonder why God would do such a thing for us. And part of the answer is here. Because he wants you to live in his favor. And he provides that life through Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you can have this. You need this. You will die without this. 
And Christian, here's a very important lesson for us. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Jesus' favored life with God is now your own. It's yours. Because Jesus died for you. Because he rose in victory over your sin and your death. You are forever locked in a permanent spiritual union with Jesus. And I promise you, you will never fully fathom the depths of significance that has in your life. But let me help us dig for just a minute. This means that you are God's child. He is your father. And he treats you with all the same love and affection he has for his firstborn, Jesus. This means that God is pleased with you. He approves of who you really are. The new you that he made. The soul and spirit of you that Jesus came to live inside. But you might say, and in your discouragement with your own condition, you might say, but what about my sin? Certainly God doesn't approve of that. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. But that's no longer who he identifies you to be. You who are once sinner and slave, now you are saint and heir with Christ. He's removed our sin and doesn't remember it. This is why those of us who have known the grace of God in Christ long for Christ's return. So that we can be removed from all that displeases God once and for all. Because of Jesus, God's favor through his spirit is now helping us to obey God more than we ever did. I I trust that's the the arc of your Christian life. While you're seeing things more and more clearly about what pleases him and what doesn't please him, you're also seeing more clearly that you're wanting to follow him, even if it takes you into painful and hard things. That's the spirit's work. We are seeing as we grow Jesus more clearly as our savior and shepherd, the one we want to follow. Your desires are changing, God willing. And you're truly wanting to love God and know we're doing what he would have for us. And we can have confidence that that's going to happen. Because we have God's unfailing favor through our union with Christ. Now, I also think this is going to change. What we seek from others. So not only are we seeing Jesus as the one who brings us God's favor, and so we're going to know the assurance and security of that, and God willing with his help live out of that, but it's also going to alter the way we look around us and look for other people's favor or don't. Jesus fills us with a knowing that we are loved by God and no one can take us away from him. So we don't need another person to tell us we're lovely because God says we're beautiful in his sight. We don't need to seek someone else's praise and affirmation because we're precious and valuable to God. We don't need to know if someone else approves of our choices. If we're walking with Christ, we are righteous in God's sight. When we have God's favor through Jesus, we no longer look to people to provide what we lack. That's now been satisfied in Jesus. Completely. So how does our perspective and posture towards people change? Well, instead of looking to them to give us what we lack, we now look to others to give them what we have. What God has given us. 
We look to them out of the favor we know. We can give people what they need and what they long for. A message that says God is pleased with Jesus and Jesus extends God's favor to you. This church, Warnell Road, is a family that together experiences and responds to God's favor with us and towards us. Knowing that each one of us share in God's favor motivates us to look at each other with pleasure instead of with criticism. And welcoming love instead of cold indifference. Church, I pray that God will keep teaching us this wonderful truth in our life together. Let's help each other sink our teeth into this. And work it out practically. Maybe ask someone else after the service this morning. Or later this week if they're knowing and experiencing God's favor. And if not, why not? So let's finish. Let's conclude our time in this chapter in God's word. Let me ask you, who is pleased with you? I hope we can come away from Luke 2 understanding that what we need most is the favor of God. And that favor comes through Jesus. So I think one of the, maybe some of the relevant questions for us as we go away from this text are things like this. Who am I? And who am I right now pleased with? Whose favor am I seeking and desiring to know? Whose way do I love? Who do you love to see praised in your life? Whose desires control yours? Whose approval is most important to us? Speak some good things to think about. Jesus is only going to be pleasing to us when we sincerely desire to have what only he can provide. No other pleasure can bring us God's favor. No other approval will last. Seek Jesus. Find eternal favor with God. Let's pray. Father, as you've revealed to us in your word this morning, do by your spirit the same in our hearts. And reveal Jesus as the one who has all your favor and the one who invites us to have it through him. We pray for those outside of your favor who are not yours and not united to you through your son. We pray you would draw them this morning to see the cross where Christ died as a sacrifice for our sins, to make us one with you, to forgive us of all that separated us from you and deserved your wrath and to to give us instead what is favorable in your sight, which is his righteousness, which he's given us as, as clothing, as robes. We pray you would exalt Jesus in the saving of those who need your favor. And Father, we pray that you would exalt Jesus by By turning those, your people here, to again seek you for all that you are. That we would find our full satisfaction in Christ, who brings us your pleasure. And may it have great and sweeping implications in our church's life and in this community as we we seek to turn and give to others what you've given us in Jesus. 
Lord, receive now as we sing our praise to you, you who are worthy of our lives and of our worship. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.